So when you think about crypto exchanges, a lot of these crypto exchanges have founders which believe in decentralization in the long term. And so you want to build infrastructure where people can interact and they make money. And that's where spinning up your own L2 comes in. Hey, listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your support helps us reach more listeners and bring you more exciting content in the future. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Associate with Avon Ventures. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. Let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey guys, morning. Morning. How are you? Doing okay. The uh, change in season got me feeling a little drowsy this morning, but you're not you're not the first person to tell me that this week. So, <laughs> all right, we've we've quite a bit to talk about today. Um, Jason won't be joining us. He's um he's traveling this week. But um, hey. so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna really talk about two things. Um, the first is really kind of what some of the activity that we've seen around um, the major crypto exchanges. Um, there was a story last week about Kraken, um, you know, working on its new L2, um, or at least reportedly working on an L2. Um, and that comes, you know, relatively on the heels of of um, Coinbase launching base. And so, Parth, I, I think it's a good opportunity for us to kind of take a step back, talk about kind of the landscape around exchanges, which has changed pretty drastically in the last year, um, and and kind of how they're thinking about growth and revenue moving forward. So we'll start there, um, and then we'll pivot to get some market commentary from Jack. It's been a while since we've uh, talked about the the macro backdrop and and some of the activity that we've seen in the last few weeks. Obviously, Bitcoin trading up, ETH trading up fairly significantly, and we'll talk a little bit about um, kind of what's driving that. But before we jump in, Parth, uh, what did you try last week? Sure. So um, so I have this new decentralized project, which I'm excited about. And uh, I believe it'll have the same reach as ENS, uh, which a lot of you have heard about. So ENS stands for Ethereum Name Service. And uh, this project is a public good, and it's called Ethereum Attestation Service, or EAS. So EAS is a public good for making attestations on-chain for just about anything you can think of. So, so think about EAS as a system which is used to validate information without revealing any sort of private details. So like it's, it's almost like a, a notary of your digital information. And a really simple example would be that if a, if a university wants to attest that I completed a degree, they can give you an attestation saying, hey, you know what? I know that Ryan went to X university and I, uh, and anyone else can verify it. So, so it's almost like getting a blue check mark on your online activity. Uh, I know it's kind of hard to explain because the number of use cases are so immense. Yeah. But uh, that's the point of uh, using an Ethereum attestation service. What is the um, 
No, it's really interesting. And I, I, I mean, I think this is pretty well aligned to kind of some of the developments that we've seen on the decentralized ID front, right? Is, is there, what would be the difference between yes. this and that? So I think that's a really good question. The, the problem with a lot of the identity systems is that they are super fragmented, right? So think about your POAPs, you think about Gitcoin, Lens, even your Worldcoins. When you think about identity, you always have attestations, right? So, so I'll, I'll take it, I'll take a step back. So when you are born, you have no identity until your mom gives you a name, right? So your first identity is our mother giving our attesting to our name. Then you have the doctor attesting to a date of birth. You have the government attesting you to your passport and your social security number. And your birth certificate and all of the identifiers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a really elegant way of Thinking about identity is an aggregation of these attestations. So EAS is a base layer to start making claims and get attestations. So it's kind of a base below, a layer below what you're talking about, which is all the other identity systems. Built on top of Ethereum. Exactly. That's correct. And I think it's also pretty important and kind of timely, because when you think about the progress in AI, artificial intelligence, it's kind of hard to verify the authenticity of facts, and it's actually harder to prove something which is factually correct. I can, I can duplicate any sort of document or content that you give me in seconds. And so the only way to verify is to get a check mark or a, or a digital attestation from the person that, that issued the claim, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead, Brian. No, I, I, I think it's, it's obviously a really interesting concept. I think what I'm trying to reconcile in my head is, okay, so you have, you're basically, to a certain extent, repurposing the kind of signature scheme that we we see within crypto to provide these attestations. I guess that's obviously really cool. <laughs> and, you know, to your point, the, the use cases are like, you know, infinite, pretty much. But I think what's interesting to me is the verification aspect, right? So you can have a signature, right? Um, and then it's how do you verify that signature, especially when you think about the fact that these use cases are not necessarily, I mean, it's a crypto native solution, but not crypto native use cases when you think about, yep. you know, verifying your employment or your income or your date of birth, right? And so like, how do you make, how do you make the tech more usable um, for the average user? So, so maybe let's talk about that process, right? So the first step is claim creation. It could be something as simple as saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a professor at Northeastern. Now you have a verifier, uh, which is Northeastern in this case, confirm that the identity is true or not. So Northeastern being the issuer will sign a message or record attestation, and then they can share the proof that I can show to any sort of third party. So a third party, all they have to do is check the attestation see that it was stamped by Northeastern and then confirm that it matches with the information that I provided. And uh, it's it's funny how well, one of the popular exchanges, uh, Coinbase, they just rolled out a verification platform like three days ago. So you can go right on Coinbase and you can verify whether you have a valid Coinbase account and what is your country of residence and they'll give you an attestation. So it's almost like a trusted badge, right? Well, which you can claim. Yeah, And so once you verify that, I think on Coinbase, you get access to a few on-chain benefits, but I think this is so new. I don't, I don't even know what the benefits are, but they just rolled that out two days ago. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So I, I guess j just to close on this, it seems like the use cases 
for it initially are probably, you know, your digitally native, like authentication of accounts, authentication of, you know, your online presence, dare I say, like the metaverse and some of the things we're seeing in the virtual world. And then I guess the natural progression of that would be into the physical world, right? When we think yeah. about, you know, to your point, like the, you go into a bar, you know, scenario where you want to provide, you know, your date of birth, but you don't want to provide where you live and every other detail about you. Yeah. And that's just one part of the use cases. But when you think about it, close to 95% of the memes or content or videos that you have consumed in your life are not AI generated, right? Which is un right now. But in a few years, it's going to get really hard to prove uh, which one was created by humans, which one was done by AI. And so you, ne you need attestations to go beyond uh, 100 years. Mm. So, so if you want to just check out EAS, just go to easscan.org and you can, you can look at all the attestations that people are making. Um, so that's kind of a fun, uh, really interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I wish Jason was here. Cause he's, he's a little bit of a, a like a decentralized identification nerd. He, he loves this topic. <laughs> so, um, definitely we'll, we'll have to, you know, ask him his thoughts on it, uh, next week when he's back. All right. So let's, let's jump into the kind of the, the main discussion. So let's talk a little bit about Kraken. So, like I said, a report came out last week that they are working on a layer two similar to Coinbase's base. And that I think got us thinking, okay, what are, what are the incentives for exchanges to work on these types of things? Obviously, it's not easy to launch an L2, you know, the right way, right? And it's a lot to maintain. Um, and so Parth, I think, you know, you were talking a little bit, wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the backdrop um, around, you know, the environment that that some of these exchanges are operating in and, and kind of why they might be incentivized to do it. So do you mind providing a little bit of overview there? Yeah, no, I think it's a really good topic because I feel like oftentimes we kind of have to take a step back. And so today we'll just talk about the, the business of being a crypto exchange, right? And so how a lot of these crypto exchanges break down their revenue numbers is in two big buckets. So you have transaction revenue and you have non-transaction revenue. Now, transaction revenue is your typical trading fee. So I sell one Bitcoin to Jack, Coinbase captures a, a small percentage or a couple of bips uh, on that transaction, which goes in the, as part of the revenue statement. And so everything else like interest income, staking, subscriptions, L2, sequencer, all of that comes under non-transaction revenue. Now, if you are a crypto exchange, the name of the game is diversification, right? So if I'm an exchange, I really want to diversify my revenue. And so what I want to do is I want to camp on transaction fee for, for a few minutes. So the problem that we have observed with transaction fee for an exchange is that it also follows a really cyclical fashion, which is corresponding to your bull market and the bear market. So if you look at these exchanges, you'll see great highs in 2017, in 2021, in terms of transaction volume, which obviously turns into uh, revenue. And so if you take example of Coinbase, in 2022, they did close to $850 billion in transaction spot volume. And in 2023, they did close to $250 billion in transaction volume. So you can see that it, there's a huge difference. Yeah. So your transaction revenue is amazing in bull markets. Since there's really no cap, you can go as high as possible but then you also fall pretty hard in the bear markets. And so that's why you look into other opportunities. Yeah, it, it also is is sort of a, an obvious area uh, that's susceptible to margin compression, right? Over time, if there was only one, you know, Coinbase in the market, then over time, 
other entrants will come in if transaction fees are are so great and so lucrative and those margins will naturally compress and we saw that in the the equity trading space eventually right robin hood is i think best known for sort of this VC-backed company company that came in and took a different approach and went to a, a zero commission model. And then eventually every large brokerage pivoted to that, you know, zero fee model. And so I think a lot of people have seen the writing on the wall for Coinbase and others that run these exchanges that, hey, you know, you can't charge two or three percent all in between commissions and spreads and expect that to live forever if you're just, you know, selling Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? Eventually, TradFi competitors uh, with scale will step in into that market um, yeah. and compress those margins. And so I think that even further pushes not only are transaction fees cyclical, but they're also susceptible to competitors coming in and eroding any sort of competitive advantage you have there and sustainability. I think that's a really good point. Uh, and so when you think about crypto exchanges, they have two problems. One is the cyclical fashion. And the second is that there is almost a race to go to uh, zero transaction fee, right? Now, when you think about other opportunities, you have another play that Coinbase and potentially Binance also did with their, with their stable coins, which is to kind of push stable coins. So when you get your dollar on Coinbase's platform and you swap it for USDC, Coinbase is minting one USDC. So they take that dollar and say, hey, you know what? You go play with your USDC while I'm going to go and invest that US dollar in short-term treasuries and like earn yield. Mm. And so from what we have seen in the previous conversations on the podcast, we know that the stablecoin volume does not fall as much even in the bear markets. So here's another source of revenue, which is slightly more stable. But the only problem is that you again have this rat race to give the maximum yield to your customers. So, so if you think about Coinbase, I think you get close to 5% or 4% rewards on your USDC. Right. But, but that's another business opportunity when you think of an exchange. Yeah. So, so I guess that brings us to L2s, right? So we, we have base, it's been active for, I don't know, six months, maybe a little longer now. Um, and so I guess, do you, do you have any thoughts on the business of L2s, right? Because the L2 landscape, it's hard to see a scenario where the exchanges really win doing this if all the exchanges are doing it in parallel. Right. Um, and then there's like a whole interoperability question, which we'll get to. But yeah, let's, can we talk about like the revenue opportunity? Um, and then just how that fits in with kind of the existing offerings in the, in the space. So, so when you think about crypto exchanges, a lot of these crypto exchanges have founders which believe in decentralization in the long term. And so you want to build infrastructure where people can interact and they make money. And that's where spinning up your own L2 comes in. So you have Coinbase, which has base, Binance has BSC, FTX, uh, rest in peace, had FTT, uh, which was their own token. But it's also almost a hedge against all the centralized services that you are providing as an exchange. Right. So, so when you talk about base, which uh, has kind of like received some sort of success, it launched and no one was truly active on the chain initially until this popular application called Frentech became huge, right? And so now applications like these drive a lot of transactions and that transaction fee obviously goes to, well, the entity running the chain, which is Coinbase in this case. So the actual profit margin for running your own blockchain or your own L2 is the fee that users pay on the L2 
subtracted by the settlement cost to send a bunch of those transactions from L2 to L1, which is Ethereum in this case. Right. Now, the interesting part is the settlement cost is going to go down when you have EIP 4844. And so now it's going to be even more profitable to run an L2. So an exchange running their own L2 is almost like a long-term platform play, which gives you a bunch of different options to monetize. And that's why an exchange like Kraken uh, might look into doing something like that. Well, yeah, you know, I think I think it's it's the near term profit and revenue opportunity, right, from operating an L2 and perhaps longer term a hedge to your point around, you know, more of the a hedge against, you know, good decentralized infrastructure coming along and disintermediating you, right? right. Um as an exchange, right? So I think I think it's kind of twofold longer, you know, long, and it's and it's pretty, you know, again, like I think there are others in crypto I personally think it's a fairly short-sighted industry or tends to be, right? Yeah. Um, and so the longer-term play, you know, or I guess the near-term play being the profit is really driving driving probably adoption right now yeah. um, or driving the exchanges to pursue this. But there is a much kind of longer-term play that could be proved to be very valuable to them, you know, as, yeah. the, as the landscape evolves. Right. And I, th I think the TLDR is that you have a lot of these exchanges just looking for different opportunities. Yeah. So when, when Coinbase IPO'd in, in 2021, their transaction revenue was close to 96% of their total revenue. And now it's almost come down to 50%. So now they're doing a bunch of different things to get revenue from different places. Uh, and when you talk about just base, base is now the number 10 blockchain in terms of TVL, which is close to 300 million in TVL. So, yeah, and this is like its fifth or, or maybe fourth month in operation. So, so you can see how lucrative an opportunity of spinning up your own blockchain could be. So, oh, go ahead, Jack. No, can I can I give a take, and we'll see yes. we'll see how well uh, or poorly this ages. Uh, you know, whatever six, twelve, eighteen months from now, uh, maybe I buy into the idea that like maybe one of these L twos and like base being the first to market that's associated with an exchange. You know, maybe there's some network effect uh, element there where we are seeing people using it, and we are seeing applications that want to integrate with it. But the idea that you would have a bunch of like every exchange would just pivot to being an on-chain exchange in its own siloed L2. I'm kind of bearish on that personally. Maybe I'm wrong and I'm happy to to be proven wrong, but that's just like where I I have a hard time seeing that if things shift on chain long term, that they all live in their own individual silos. And it seems like that's what an exchange would want, right? Yeah. Rather than shifting things completely on chain let's just put it into its siloed area where we're making revenue off of you know you using our wallet inside of our walled garden to some degree um where we control the sequencer and batch transactions and make revenue off of this whereas like well it's the ultimate vision here right it's for that's more transparent but it's not truly like open source living in the wild and fully interoperable. Uh, i'll make a digital attestation to your spicy take but but what I'm going to say is that it's not you're right. It's not just it's not just spinning up your own L2s. I think uh, if you think about staking, that's also another source of revenue that a lot of exchanges are looking into. In fact, Kraken is also potentially looking into selling traditional stocks and equity. Right. So so you're right. Only a few of the the exchanges will win the L2 uh, sort of wars. But, uh, but yeah, I think I think the the play right now is to just spin up your own blockchain and then have that walled garden and just earn from that transaction fee exactly and see what happens. Yeah, 
Yeah, and like the interoperability question. Maybe there's a transition period there, right? Like maybe these L2s are, you know, there's a few of them that really do have, you know, meaningful revenue for the underlying exchange and like do gain real traction in users as is evidence at the moment by base. But then like longer term, maybe they transition into something else. So maybe I'm just being like, sort of looking way too far into the future, whereas there's like this interim period of time that they could be successful. Well, and and to me, right, I think the near term value is, you know, bringing some level of utility, like trying to build to your point, you know, a really nice walled garden where people never want to leave. But if you if you evolve that model into something, you know, where you, these L2s can be used to kind of create a more frictionless user experience between other applications and these exchanges, well, then there's like this whole question around like asset stickiness and like, how do you get people to stay if you make it really easy for them to come and go type of thing, right? And so um, I, I do think it, it this will be something really interesting to watch long term um again like there's there's the the more immediate incentive you know incentives that they have which we've talked about money right more or less um and then there's like the longer term play here but again that that longer term piece i think is more um uncertain in terms of how it could evolve in the context of the rest of the market um cool thanks barth really appreciate the uh the overview there all right so Jack, we love we love a we love a Jack macro update, <laughs> and it's been a while, um, and I feel like we haven't really talked about what's been going on in the crypto market over the past few weeks. But um, you know, the 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 bulls seem to be back to some extent. So, um, do you mind just taking a few minutes just to talk a little bit about kind of what we've seen over the last few weeks, and maybe even you know month or two, and kind of how that's impacting um, you know crypto markets. Yeah, for sure. Maybe I'll I'll set the stage with some of the things, uh, you know, I think they're pretty self-explanatory, but uh, some of the things that appear to be kind of driving price and narrative at the moment, almost exactly a month to the day that we're talking. Today, we're talking November 13th. If you go back a month, October 13th, 14th, that was the start of this most recent rally. Uh, Bitcoin's up 37% in that you know, prior roughly 30-day period of time. Price was around $27,000 at the time. Now we're trading around $37,000, uh, so roughly a, a $10,000 price increase. And I think some of the drivers at the moment, like one, if we just look at the, the broader macro backdrop, uh, quite frankly, just nothing has like structurally broken. The economic data has been okay. Uh, like we see inflation is, is kind of slowly tapering down depending on what you know CPI metric or truflation, uh, whatever data you sort of look at, it is slowly trending in the right direction. We haven't seen any you know crazy spikes. Uh, we certainly could, but um, that is the case. And everybody talked about rate increases and what's the impact going to be. Well, we haven't seen any like cataclysmic type events at the moment. And like a lot of that could have to do with the fact that, you know, rate increases don't ultimately matter unless your your debt is a floating rate variable and gets repriced with the rate increase or it matters when you have like a balloon payment and have to refinance at some point but if we go back a couple of years ago a lot of companies turned out their debt right and and so like we saw some of the large fang stocks uh, like amazon and apple for instance uh, had turned out a lot of debt on these long on these long bonds that now they're they're fixed at you know these low you know one two three percent interest rates for their financing and they don't have to re up at five and a half percent plus whatever the the equity risk premium spread is or the you know corporate risk premium credit risk premium would be for them 
And so for some companies, some of these, these largest companies are actually beneficiaries because they have large cash balances that are now earning higher rates and they have debt that's fixed at lower costs. And you're seeing that with these dispersions in the equity markets. So a lot of people are talking about the magnificent seven, right? These are seven of the largest companies that everybody's sort of talking about, uh, tend to be technology oriented. Um, and they've been trading really well this year, uh, so much so, and they're the largest portion of the market cap weighted indices like the S&P 500. So the S&P is up 15% this year as we're speaking. Um, underneath the surface for smaller companies, we are seeing you know, potentially the impact of, of rate increases starting to hit those companies. If you look at the Russell 2000, it's not the same story as the market capitalization weighted you know, largest companies. And so at the moment, all that to say is that the macro backdrop, we've seen some dispersion underneath the surface because of you know, rate increases and, and different things happening. But like the econ, econ data has, has held together um, and, and equity markets, risk markets have kind of held together. And so you kind of have the backdrop of crypto as the riskiest asset, you know, a, a relatively speculative uh, bucket. People are okay or appear to be seem okay with, with taking uh, a little additional risk in the current market environment. Now that could certainly change on a dime any day, week or month, uh, into the future as rate increases, you know, continue to potentially take a toll on the underlying economy. Um, but that sets the backdrop where the main narrative around Bitcoin and crypto right now is the potential for an approval of a Bitcoin spot ETP that's been sort of long awaited for the past five and 10 years by the industry in the United States continues to potentially inch closer. And, and that is the main talking point, uh, the main narrative that I think these markets are trading on at the moment. Um, we have the, the Grayscale lawsuit appeared to you know, go well for the crypto industry for Grayscale. Uh, we still don't ultimately know what the sort of next steps are in that process for Grayscale trying to convert the GBTC Grayscale Bitcoin Trust into uh, an exchange traded product that would have a redemption mechanism. We don't know the answer there, but we also see the SEC appears to be working with filers Right. We've seen various amendments to the prospectuses, to the, the S1 filings uh, from these uh, Bitcoin spot ETF filers or ETP is, is technically what it is. Um, and ironically, what this has led to is an increased usage of regulated U.S. futures. And so this will be sort of the, the last point I'll leave with, um, which is sort of an observation of the U.S. regulated futures market for Bitcoin, primarily it's the CME, it's kind of the only game in town uh, in the United States. And for the first time ever, the CME is currently the largest futures venue uh, for Bitcoin futures measured by open interest. So over $4 billion in open interest. Futures are now trading in contango. That means that the future price, so right now it's November, the December price of futures is trading above the current spot price. That tends to be when people are sort of constructive on the asset and a lot of people are trying to get long exposure such that they're, you know, there's more longs than people that want to short out into the future and it starts to trade at a, at a premium. Uh, we saw that in previous bull markets and then the futures market flipped into backwardation, which is the opposite, right? Bearish and more people trying to short. And now we've seen that invert or flip in recent weeks and months. And if we dig into some of the data and some of the underlying reasons, well, part of it is the fact that a spot 
Bitcoin ETF doesn't actually exist, right? And people are potentially getting constructive around Bitcoin or crypto because there could be an approval and, and people are speculating that there could be an approval. And we've seen positive inflows into uh, like the largest futures ETFs, like BITO is the largest Bitcoin futures ETF. We've seen roughly $250 million in inflows over the past month. That's the, the second largest month on record, the highest volume month on record. And so ironically, what you're seeing is an increased usage of Bitcoin futures in the United States because people are appear to be speculating on the potential for an approval of a Bitcoin spot ETP. Jack, this might be a really dumb question, but what's the difference between an ETP and e ETF? Yeah, so structurally, the, the main important point is that there is a redemption mechanism involved in both an ETF and an ETP. And so that's why that's what the, the crypto industry has been looking for is a product that efficiently trades at its net asset value of the underlying assets. And the, the problem that people have had historically with the products that trade on the secondary market in the US that hold spot crypto, such as GBTC being the largest, is they don't have a redemption mechanism. And so ETF, ETP, there are sort of micro uh, reasons why there are differences between the two. But for instance, GLD is an ETP, but it has a redemption mechanism for all intents and purposes. There are very similar vehicles and the words can be confusing. Technically, it is an ETP. Um, but when everyone talks spot Bitcoin ETF, they're really talking about an ETP that all of these filers have filed for. But there are mechanical reasons or, or differences between the two in terms of like investment concentration and the underlying assets that an ETF can hold versus an ETP. But the important part is redemption. A product, a spot product that has a redemption mechanism that can efficiently trade near its net asset value. So I think what I'm trying to reconcile. So obviously the market has become very reactive to both positive and negative sentiment in general, but particularly around the, 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 you know, potential approval of an ETP, right? And so I think from my perspective, Jack, I'm curious, and I, maybe there is some relationship with the futures activity that we're seeing, like, all right, we get an approval, right? That's obviously, po you know, net positive for the industry. It's kind of, it, it, it's, you know, to your point, what everyone has, you know, been waiting for, right? But I guess there's an implied benefit to the asset in that it, it will improve particularly institutional access to Bitcoin, right? Is, would you, would, well, I guess before I say right, would you agree with that? Yeah, I do, I do think now it's different from five years ago, right? Five years ago, there were not as many access points into owning the underlying or getting true exposure in one form or another via regulated venue as there are today. Right. Yeah, because you can't hold it spot, right? Yeah, um, and but I, I do think like the longer term picture uh, from a, a regulatory environment perspective is the fact that if you do get a spot Bitcoin ETP approved, like I do think that that means something to an institutional investor that's looking at this space where this is a, you know, a long standing issue that the industry has not been able to sort of get over this hurdle. I think that bigger picture is more important versus 
you know, in the micro, in the short term, I mean, there are a lot of access points for investors that right. are really interested that are probably the the ones that would want to own a, a larger portion of the asset. Like they can go out and do it. It's just, there's a lot of hurdles uh, and, and issues potentially involved. And that's why I raised the question, right? Because I'm really trying to understand, okay, what, you know, what, what has people so excited? Um, and to me, to me it, like, so then maybe it's more about the legitimization that comes with this, um, and and obviously, as we know, regulatory the lack of regulatory clarity continues to be a very significant barrier, you know, globally, but particularly in the United States for adoption, right? And so, um, is is it really more about sentiment versus the asset ver rather than sentiment versus this product that will soon be, you know? No, I think it's a great observation, and a lot of the people that are like ringing the cowbell and are super excited about this potential approval that could come are people that own the spot asset itself and wouldn't actually buy the product. Right. Right. So it's like, it's a little funny to, to see that happening and leads you to maybe have exercised some amount of caution because everybody seems to be on one side of the ship saying like, oh, this is you know, going to be great for the industry and potentially the price of the asset. But, you know, I think exercising a little caution and looking at the fact that when Coinbase IPO'd, you know, the market was excited because this was, you know, the first time you had a, a crypto uh, only infrastructure company that you know, was of that size that went public. That marked a local top in the market. When the BITO, these futures funds were approved, that marked a local top in the market back in 2021. And so could that potentially happen again here where, you know, the market gets really excited and then the product actually comes out and in the very short term, like everybody's like, okay, well, what's next, right? Because this is all everybody's talking about for the most part. And then it's like, okay, well, what's next on the horizon? There isn't anything that's this big. And a lot of people are kind of baking in the expectation that it could get approved. Yeah. And I, I think if it launches, you know, what is, what is, what are volumes look like? Right. And that's why I'm, you know, really wondering, okay, what are we excited about here and what's driving some the of that futures volume that Jack was talking about might, that might move maybe with a haircut, but, uh, but yeah, no, I think you're right. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, guys, this was a really great discussion today. Um, Par, thanks so much for for taking us through the exchange discussion. And Jack, thanks, you know, as always for a really awesome uh, macro update. Um, you know, it seems like there's going to be some, you know, a, a few exciting months ahead of us here. Um, so really looking forward to uh, future discussions and uh, we'll definitely keep everyone here posted as, as some of these things progress. So thanks everyone for joining today. We will uh, talk to you next week. Have a great rest of your week. Bye-bye. Crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. Crypto may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities. Crypto is not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Investors in crypto do not benefit from the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. 
Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and are not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution would, or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. One zero four zero one five six.